Good. So, uh, folks, thank you for listening today. I've got Scott Maitland on the phone with me, and um, Scott has been he's been so kind to uh, be one of the first folks that is doing this podcast. He was also one of the very first ones that uh, we interviewed for the book a few years ago. One of the first ones we videoed. In fact, Scott was one of the folks that um, when I was doing these interviews years ago, and we were just trying to get some content for our blog, and I listened to Scott really kind of light up on certain topics, and you could just hear his passion and his enthusiasm for what he was doing uh, come alive. And, you know, w- when we did the book, I thought, well, this is this is one thing that you kind of miss when you when you write this stuff is is, um, is being able to just hear somebody really come alive like that, and that kind of led to the video series. Uh, and then here we are back with the podcast. But Scott's just been a successful restaurateur for um, – nearly 20 years now. He owns uh, Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and then recently opened Topo Distillery. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but, uh, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so, I, actually, it's funny. I just said that you're a successful restaurateur, but, you know, one thing that um, you said before is, uh, you know, you don't consider yourself a restaurateur. You consider yourself a businessman. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, so, and this obviously there are exceptions to this rule, but but uh, especially when I was getting into this business 20 years ago, the people that got into the business were folks that kind of had grown up in the business, uh, either you know through the family itself or or you know got involved early and and got a lot of experience. And and I hadn't. I'd been an army officer that uh, uh, got out of the army after the first Gulf War, came here to Carolina for um, law school, and thought. I didn't want to see downtown Chapel Hill dominated by a chain restaurant and came up with an idea to prevent that from happening. And so, you know, I I didn't have any claims on actually being a restaurateur, um, but I think that the role I played, and, and I continue to think of myself as, as, as a business person and bringing a sensibility to how to actually run the business, because I tell people all the time, I think there's the business of what you do and then the business of running the business, and you need to make sure that you are um, have got both of those sides of the equations actually um, uh, covered. And so, you know, uh, you know, I I love being a restaurateur, but I think that my real, you know, value is setting up teams and setting up systems and and, and getting the right people that can actually do what we do, as opposed to the business of what we do. Now, did you when you came in, so not having that experience. Were you balancing the the when you say explain a little bit more about when you say the business of what you do and the business of the business? Give me some examples of what you mean by that. Well, you know, so people will come to me all the time and say, "Hey, listen, I love cooking, or I love brewing, or I love distilling. I want to start a restaurant, a brewery, or a distillery." And I look at them and I say, "Well, if you really love cooking, brewing, and distilling, then you should go get a job as." you know, a chef, as a brewer, or as a distiller. Because if you're going to open up an establishment, suddenly, you know, you've got a whole host of other things you need to deal with. Regulations, you know, payroll, um, accounts payable, accounts receivable, all of these things that, that, quite frankly, are probably overlooked in terms of this successful business, right? I mean, like, uh, this is going to sound stupid, but I mean, 
you know, because we're restaurateurs, I don't have to worry too much about accounts payable. Uh, when I started the distillery, I realized that we were focused on making sales or whatever, and one day I realized, you know, we're not doing a very good job of actually getting the money. <laughs> we're sending stuff off, and we're forgetting to actually collect. Um, and this is the whole point, is that you you need to um, manage the business aspects, and quite frankly, all businesses share those problems. So, you know, a, a successful business person is going to be able to, you know, hop into almost any business and say, hey, I recognize what's going on here, we need to tighten up our payroll or tighten up accounts payable or receivable or we need to do whatever. Um, and then there's specialized knowledge in terms of what the actual business does. And so in our case, restaurant, brewing, distilling, you know, we've got CIA-trained chefs and we've got uh, Siebel Institute-trained brewers and distillers and, and folks that, you know, know how to do that. Um, and I think that that's a big distinction. And and if, if you're not seeing that distinction – then I think you need to really sit back and say, hey, am I ready to start my own business? Because, um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, welcome to the uh, sexiness of starting your own business. It you know, typically means staying up, working on QuickBooks, and, and, you know, typically once a week cleaning a toilet. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You have to be willing to do it all. Well, So then let me ask you this. Did you, when you started, I mean, I know now you've got, you know, uh, folks that help with the business of, of what you do. But when you started, you probably had to learn that yourself. Were you handling kind of the business of what you do and the business of the business, if you will, yourself? Or how did you how did you split that up, and then what's changed since then? That's right. I mean, um, um, you know, so I, I knew that I didn't have much restaurant experience, and I ended up getting a partner that was a restaurateur, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, one of the founders of Bobby Vans uh, Steakhouses up in New York and D.C., um, and so I spent a lot of time with him and, and uh, learned how to, you know, basic front of the house and, and back of the house management. Um, and it took a while to get a team together. Um, and, uh, you know, even when we started, and every every person that's ever started a restaurant knows this, you get started and it's very clear very quickly that some people are cut out for it and some people aren't. Uh, you know, so you need to change your team around and you need to uh, get that team together. But, uh yeah, no, in the beginning, uh, starting the restaurant 20 years ago, it was, you know, 120 hours a week. I had to fire my, my other partner um, and take over his shifts and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so I was doing it both, and that, that's a hard thing to do. But it can be done, um, but hopefully you get up to a point and a scale where you can bring in other folks that can, can help lighten the load and you can get back to leading a somewhat normal life because, like I tell people all the time, you know, I, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and so you got to be careful about how long you're going to put in those 100-hour weeks because at some point you're going to break. Um, and so, you know, work hard to become efficient enough uh, to be able to afford people to help lighten the load. Yeah, and uh, so you really have to be willing. I mean, is that like a – I know it varies, but – where do you get to a point where you you know you're ready to do that? And maybe is it is it after a certain time period, or is it after? I mean, clearly the restaurant has to be able to afford somebody. But it's like you you were able to bring in people that like a general manager and folks that you can trust to really kind of be there and, and run the, the you know the business of, of what you do. Like where do you when do you get to that point? <laughs> well. Um... Do you want the, uh, um, hey, I teach at the business school answer, or do you want the real-world answer? <laughs> real-world, real-world. <laughs> so, um, 
the real world answer is when you realize you're reaching your breaking point. And, and, and this is a problem because you, you, you then, what ends up happening, at least in my experience, you know, you, you get close to br- your breaking point and then you kind of just look for any lifeline that's there. And so you end up probably hiring folks that maybe aren't the best, but they're just around. Um, and that brings up a whole set of challenges. So one of the things that I would recommend is try to be proactive in the beginning. I mean, recognize, hey, this is going to require superhuman effort in the beginning, but I'm going to work into a spot where, um, you know, I'm going to bring on other team members and from day one start evaluating who those other team members might be um, and, and maybe even start recruiting and start thinking about outside your organization about folks that maybe you could bring in um, because, Situations or, or decisions made out of desperation typically don't work out very well in my book. So, um, um, you know, I try to tell people all the time: hire the right person, don't fill the position. Um, because hiring the wrong person um, can end up making it even harder than just having nobody at all. And so, um, um, you know, I don't. I think you need to know right away that hey, I'm going to be adequately staffed. Um, and, and kind of on a related note, um, I see when people come to me with a business plan, and those you'll look at it and say, "Well, where's your compensation?" And they say, "Well, <clears throat> no, I'm not going to pay myself." <clears throat> um, and I I always tell them, "No, you need to have it in your business plan that you're getting compensated." And and the response will be, "Well, if I do that, then then the business plan doesn't show that I'm making any money," and then. My response is, well, then you need to think about your business model because um, whether you're not paying yourself or you're expecting yourself to work 100, 120 hours a week, either one of those tells me that there's something wrong with your business model. And if you want to be around for the long term, then you're going to have to address this because the only way you're going to be around for the long term is get it down to where you're only working 50, 60, 70 hours a week as opposed to 100 hours a week. And you're actually making some money so you can pay the rent. Yeah, good point. Good point. Uh, so you really need to, uh, and so I would imagine you would pay yourself. You need to be so that would escalate though. But you're saying you've got folks that are coming in saying, "Hey, I'm not going to pay myself for the first year or two years or three years." And when you see that, you kind of feel like there's probably something wrong with the model. Well, yeah, especially when they're they're you know, and going and this kind of gets you know, it's all one big nut roll, right? So it's kind of related. You know, people want to raise money to do their venture, whatever that venture is. And so when you look at it and you see the projections um, and the way they make the business make enough money to get the interest of the potential investor is by not paying themselves, well, that makes me very, very concerned um, because it's not sustainable. Something's going to break. And so um, I think that you know, you need to go back and say, okay, well, wait a minute here. Is this the right location? Is this the right concept? You know, I think at the end of the day, um, as I get more and more involved in teaching entrepreneurship, what I've really come to realize is that the role of the entrepreneur is is over, overarchingly two big things. One is really work on the business model, and, and what you're actually creating is a business model, and then two, putting that team together. Um, and obviously, that team includes you. And, and, I, and I'm sure not suggesting that that you know that you can't 
go out and work without compensating yourself, but recognize that that's a moment of imbalance and and that there's only a certain period of time that that will be able to be sustainable. And what you need to be thinking about is how can I make this sustainable for the long run? And you sound like, so I would think that if you, so if you're going to go raise money, and I want to talk to you about that too because you had a really cool story I thought about raising money, but but when you start thinking about the type of investor you want, don't you want, don't you want, Scott, an investor that has the same mentality that you just expressed, which is, uh, it's not myopic. That's kind of looking at this and going, "Hey, buddy, look, you need to pay yourself because we want you to be, you know, we want you to have balance so that you can, you can create a long-term, successful, profitable business that will give us a, a long-term, you know, really good return." Versus somebody that's saying, "Hey, look, you need to not pay yourself for a year or two because you know you need the you need the restaurant to make money and and give a good return." I mean, you really need to find the type of investor that wants you to pay yourself, right? Wouldn't that be a smart way no, to go absolutely. about it? So first of all, that's where I learned it from. I learned I learned that I was making the same mistake I'm talking about in the beginning, and I learned that from potential investors. But the other thing that, that – um, so I actually have a maximum about this. I call this the dog food maximum, the dog food maximum or dog food principle, which is people will say, well, no, 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 I don't need to pay myself. I'm so fired up about making this happen. I'm willing to eat dog food. Okay, great. I literally had somebody say that to me one time. Well, the problem is is that you can't count on the dog food factor, right? So, like, we're in the planning stage right now. So if if in your planning stage you are unable to make the business model enough that on paper, barring all of the stuff that happens when you open, and we all know bad stuff happens, if you can't make it work on paper, well, I'm telling you that your business model then is inherently flawed because – What's going to happen is you're going to get started, and expenses are always going to be more than you expect, and income is always going to be less than what you expect. And so so one way to look at building in that compensation to you is, is that's an extra reserve. So I think what you need to do is you need to be go into anything with the idea that I may not be compensated, but you don't go in planning on that. Does that make uh, gotcha. sense? That, that, yes. that your willingness to go uncompensated is – sort of the last lines of defense on, hey, we're close, we're going to break through, it's okay, I won't take a couple paychecks or whatever, right? Um, and, and But you can't count on the dog food factor because in my experience, I have had to eat dog food on more than one occasion. And, and I actually literally didn't have to eat dog food, but I did have to eat food that was rejected by the local food shelter, which is a whole story in and of itself one day we can talk about. So, so you know, don't count on the dog food factor have that as an as an extra reserve when you need to do the final push to get over the hump. Right. So 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 it has to be in your plan uh but in the real world application where you go okay, I was supposed to make this amount this month but there's just no way. You have to pay yourself last. Is that would that be right like in the real world application you come right. last. Once you, and it, once you get things going, I mean, hey, you got to do what you got to do to make it survive. And I'm just always stunned at the people that before it even gets going are already planning that they're not going to get any compensation for themselves. And when I see that, it's just that is inherently unstable. It's inherently not going to make it. Okay. Because you know, there is there is no emergency reserve. Right? And by the way, there should be emergency reserve built into your plan. And then your own salary and stuff, well that's the second level of emergency reserve, right? How many yeah, how many uh so let's talk a little bit about that. So you built out the plan and you realize that you needed to raise a million too to to get started. So uh, 
if I'm correct, you you, you had like half a million SBA loans, and then seven hundred thousand and uh, and equity through investors. And you, um, so I want to talk a little bit about both those. Um, so the, the the SBA loan, the five hundred thousand. I know, and this was twenty years ago, or, or however long ago, close to it. But so the the you know the lending landscape has changed a little bit, but but still, your process you went through, I thought was really cool, which is fill in this. But you you got turned down by some some banks, and right. you finally got one, and then you kind of went back. And so it's, tell, tell tell that story. I thought that was a really fascinating story about how you were able to to turn a lot of no's into ultimately a lot of yeses just by leveraging other yeses. That's right, and so. Uh, you know, one of the things that you're going to need if you're going to start something is tenacity. And so, um, you know, so so first of all, while I was working to raise the money and build the build the company or form the company, you know, I wasn't paying myself. Let's get back to, you know, I was out working odd jobs, doing whatever it took to get money. Um, but as I went, I realized, um, you know, okay, great, we need to have equity, we need to have debt financing, and I was kind of pursuing parallel tracks with both and kind of getting nowhere on either one. Uh, and one of the first things that I would like to say is that you need to tailor your your pitch to the appropriate audience because uh, debt funders, banks or whoever, uh, are looking for different things than equity folks are. So, for example, you know, the bank doesn't really care how much money you can make. They're much more interested in, you know, is there collateral and what happens in the worst-case scenario, whereas the investor is much more interested in, in you know, the, the, the potential. And, and the, 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 the bank is like they just want to make sure they don't put themselves in a situation where they don't recoup their money. The investor knows, okay, I could lose everything, but what's my – What's my upside? Like, my upside could be whatever. And the bank right. is more like, how do we just make sure we don't lose? That's right. And so, in any event, so and, and the point is, is that really changes how you have that discussion. But, so what I found is I went to the first bank. The you know, first bank said, no, you know, I'm, I'm at this point 26 years old and uh, um, I guess maybe 28 years old. Um, no restaurant experience, et cetera, et cetera. So, um What's you know I, I was not not a lot of faith. So bottom line is, I go to the first bank, they say no. I go to the second bank, I say no. But I and this is key: you have to be intellectually honest when you're having these discussions. You cannot be in love with your idea. And what you need to do is you need to take it on the chin, no matter how ridiculous the objection is or objections to your plan or your idea. You need to soak it in, so that way then your plan is going to get better. Um, and I'd like to point out that that's one of the pieces of advice I would have and one of the things I didn't do is if I asked you to raise money right now, whether it was from equity investors or bankers, um, you would make a list of, you know, the top 100 people that you thought would give you money. And the interesting thing is that that list would be ranked, the number one person on your list is probably your best um, prospect. And so the mistake I make and made and the mistake I see lots of people making is they'll make the list, and then they start at number one. Um, what I would suggest is make your list of 75 to 100 people that think might give you money and start at the bottom. Start at your worst prospects. Because as you go into these meetings, and as I went into my meetings, people would tell me, well, you know, uh, I've heard you're never supposed to put a restaurant on the third floor. Um, I'm like, really? Where did you hear that? No, no, that's just a rule of thumb. And they, they wouldn't I, – I had no answer to this. Uh, people say, well, there's not enough parking, and – 
And, you know, they go through the whole plan, and they come up with their objections. Well, after three meetings, I realized, okay, these same objections are coming up over and over and over again, and I started developing answers and started iterating my plan based on these objections. And and as, unfortunately, I worked through my best prospects, my pitch was getting better and better. So by the time my pitch got really good, I had gone down to the last bank. And at that point, there was literally 17 banks in uh, the, the Triangle area, and I went to the last bank, the only bank I had not talked to, Durham State Guarantee Bank, God bless them. They they probably are out of business now because they were willing to loan me money. But <laughs> so um, the last guy, I literally had no other bank to talk to. Said, "I'll tell you what, you're looking for a half million dollars. I'll give you fifty thousand dollars if you raise one point one five million in equity." Well, that did me absolutely no good. Um, but I said to him, "That's great. Put that in a letter." And so we did, and. What I did was I ended up going back to bank number 16, which was, you know, I had met the week before and who told me no. And I said, hey, you know what? I met with Durham, Durham Guarantee State Bank. They offered to give me $50,000, but to be honest, I, I felt like there was a more love of connection between you and me, and I think you're missing a boat. And I'll be darned if the guy said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you seventy five grand." And I started working my way back up the chain, and by the time I got back to bank five, I got the full half-million-dollar loan. And once I got that full half-million-dollar loan, you know, all of a sudden my uh, attractiveness to other investors on the equity side became a lot better because I was able to say, hey, I've got this SBA-approved loan. And so people knew, A, that, that you know, clearly I had to have a pretty good plan to go through that SBA process, and B, um, you know, there, there was sort of this, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval, and after that, I really kind of broke through in terms of getting actual equity investment. So this is so really amazing story for a, a lot of reasons, but I love this example. Uh, this is the social proof, the power of social proof here, where you, the other bank says no, but then you come back and you started having these banks basically you. You 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 made them compete against each other, and they're all competitive. And then we're seeing, okay, well now, you know, there's six other banks that have offered him money. Let's let's do and let's do a little bit more so we can get his business. So then you you completely turn it around. That's an amazing story. It's a it's a fascinating example of um, being tenacious, as you said, and then not just accepting what you get, but then you know trying to leverage. What you have to to get more. So so you went from fifty thousand all the way up to the half a million. That's right. And, uh, from, and, and from by the way, let's drill down on that for a second. Which is but, so the bank that gave you half a million had initially turned you down for anything. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And 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 the thing is that I think is key about this, and this goes back to this idea that that bankers are looking for something different than um, um, investors, and so the banks are always most concerned about risk, and so. You're right, that social approval or that social, you know, redemption uh, from being accepted. But the other thing I think it did was it really lowered the risk profile of the bankers that said yes because they could say, well, you know, this other banker said it was good too, right? You know what I mean? They weren't out on a limb. And and I think that that was an interesting aspect to the, to the whole and, deal. And, you, and your plan had iterated some, but, I mean, really the same risks were there, right? Like fundamentally the risk factor hadn't changed. It was just the, the 
the market had changed in the sense that there were other banks that were were willing to lend you money. I mean, you went yeah, back to although, bank number five. What, 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 I mean, your plan had changed some. Yeah, but. well, no, my plan hadn't changed much. But, but what happened was is that there were a lot of concerns. I mean, you know, so I'm going into a, a third-story space with no attached parking. And, and, yeah, there were other issues, but the reality is that was the biggest thing. And, and so what was fascinating is, is I would keep bumping into people that said, you know, you can't put a restaurant on the third floor. And I would ask them, why not? And they were like, I don't know, it's just a rule of thumb. And this is pre-Internet, so we don't have the ability to say, why don't you put a restaurant on the third floor? And I kept tracking this, you know, bird-dogging this thing down. And ultimately what I realized was is that the driving force for independent restaurants is New York City. And in New York City, you don't put a restaurant on the third floor. Why? Because there's no walk-by visibility. Mm-hmm. And once I was able to nail that down, I was when people said, well, you know, you never put a restaurant on the third floor, I was able to say, well, actually, you don't put a restaurant on the third floor in New York City because of visibility concerns, but in fact, our third floor location dominates the landscape of the town, and, and, and there's no, uh, no problems with, um, you know, visibility. Um, parking. You know, I went out and did a parking survey, and I figured out how much parking there was. People say, well, there's no parking. And I'm like, well, actually, there's 1,094 spots. Uh, you know, that type of thing. So, so um, um, no, on one hand, the plan had not changed so much, but I learned to be able to anticipate the objections. And I actually think that, that um, part of it's about relationships, too, right? So the banker that turns me down originally, banker, you know, bank number five, you know, I think they're very surprised when I show back up six months later and they see, holy crap, you know, this guy's got $400,000 of, of, uh, of an SBA loan promised to him. And, and, you know, as we talked about their original objections, I had ready answers to that. So, so I got a lot better, um, um, you know, and, and I'm not so sure that my plan got better, but my ability to anticipate the concerns got a heck of a lot better. That's fantastic. I like the fact that you, you didn't just accept a, a heuristic or a rule of thumb and like, okay, well, you can't put it on third floor. Like, you, not only did you not let that change your plan to where you went, okay, just forget it, this location isn't going to work, but then you you, you said, okay, well, why is it that people feel that way? Because that's, that's, these rules of thumb are, they're easy to, sometimes you don't exactly even know why you're saying it. Like you just know, okay, well, I just hear you aren't supposed to do that. But then if you really kind of drill the person why, they, they don't exactly know. I, I don't really know. I just know that's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, so you kind of went out and took it upon yourself to say, well, let's let's figure this out. What a great way to then turn around an objection and say, "Well, yeah, I hear you, but here's why people say that." I think that's that's a that's a that's a really smart strategy. Well, you know, and I think that that like anything, you you, you take somebody you, you take somebody's objection, and not only do you show to them that their objection is unfounded, but then you actually say, and in fact, that touches on the real strength of my project, right? Um, and so that's that's part of the whole thing about sales, right? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just glad it all worked. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, then, okay. So let's talk about this. So you've got then you get the SBO, and then you've got another seven hundred thousand to get uh, from investors, which touches a little bit on the idea of I love the idea of the investor list because I do. Like I can sit here right now if I was thinking, okay, I'm going to start a restaurant. I want to raise money. Who, who, you know, and I and, and I start writing lists of people. That I think I would approach your your natural best prospects immediately come to mind. Like you write down the five or ten people or whatever. By the time you get to fifty or seventy five, you're really stretching. You're, you're I mean, if you, you're really having to stretch the you know 
friends of friends or, you know, associates of business acquaintances or whatever that you've met once or twice or whatever. So those are really the folks you're saying that you want to start your pitch with. Uh, and that's where you're going to learn, and you know, what objections they have, which might be different types of objections than a bank would have. But, but you're again, you're going to learn, you know, those objections, so that when you get to your natural, your natural, you know, obvious list of five or ten, you're fully prepared uh, yeah. to to deal with the objections they might have. Plus, you've maybe made the, the appropriate, you know, changes to your plan along the way. Well, that's it. And so I ended up ultimately having to give my pitch 372 times. And, you know, I haven't done it in 19 years, but I suspect that if you gave me three minutes, I could probably do the pitch again. <laughs> um, right? Well, so so here's the interesting thing, though. I'd like to compare and contrast this to my experience with starting the distillery. So, you know, when I'm starting the restaurant and brewery, I'm young, I'm untested, and blah, 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 so nobody wants to give me money. So now I come up with the idea of the first organic distillery in the South, and... Uh, I come up with a plan, and actually, I mean, it wouldn't just be the first organic distillery in the South at, at, at the time. It was like, let's be one of the first distilleries in the South, micro distilleries. And so I come up with a plan, and I float it out to eight people. And they all come back and say, we're in. We'd like to invest. And so I say, great, what'd you think of the plan? And they all said, don't know, didn't read it. Every one of them, all eight, all eight of the people that said we're in did not read the plan at all. And that freaked me out because the restaurant really helped cement the idea in my own brain. And it really did challenge me to, to you know, poke sticks in the dark spaces in the plan and figure out what the heck is going on and, and have we really thought through it. And, and by the time, you know, we were ready to start the restaurant, I, I felt quite comfortable that we were going to be very successful. And the lack of vetting of the distillery process, on the other hand, freaked me out so much that I actually shelved the project for two years because I was unsure about my own analysis. And so uh, uh, I think that's an interesting thing. So, so that's the, the big lesson is that when you go out and you start presenting and trying to raise that money, um, use that as a learning opportunity to make your plan better. Do you think that those eight people, because they knew you, so they were sort of betting on the jockey, not the horse kind of thing, and they just – they they felt like they didn't need to read the plan. They knew you well enough that they believed you were going to make it successful. Or what? Like what's this? Why did that happen? That's exactly right. It is the it is absolutely the uh, the they're betting on the jockey. And my whole point was, I said, hey guys, you know what? I, I really am flattered by that, but you need to understand. You know, if I was starting another brew pub, okay, I get it. I'm running the same race. But I'm not. I am literally entering into an entirely different race. And so um, um, I don't think that, quite frankly, I don't think any of my investors ever really um, truly understood that. I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's flattering. I mean, hey, part of, the, of any deal is, is you've got to have a good person so, uh, or a good team. So, you know, you know I'm not going to say they were bad investors for, for believing in me, but um, – from the, the real takeaway, though, is, is that I really appreciated the the vetting process of my idea. And at first, I didn't. At first, I, you know, when I started with Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery, I thought, well, hey, I know all of this. And it was kind of a shock um, to get so much criticism. But I realized that that was one of the things that made us really successful. And, and I, quite frankly, wish that there had been a little bit more 
of pushback and criticism on my distillery because I've had to find some some things out along the way that I think that maybe if I'd been pushed harder at the money side, uh, we would have figured this out beforehand. So you really, and this is important, I think, do you embrace the pushback because you know it forces you to Be perhaps learn more than you would do naturally. And so it's almost like, and so, and you also are, are willing to say, you know, check your ego at the door versus thinking, okay, hey, I've already been successful. I don't need you to, you know, like, you don't need to read this plan. You know, but you're really saying, look, you need, to, you almost need your investor. Like if, if you're like sort of second time around or whatever, or you're, you've already done one concept, but you're doing another, you almost need people to, instead of like betting on the jockey, you need them to, to kind of go to them and go, Let's pretend I was a 26-year-old first-time restaurateur. You know, read this plan that way, and then let me know whether you want to invest. Would that be a, a fair thing to say? You think that would be a wise thing to do? No, that's right. I mean, what I'm saying is, you think about it, right? It is free. It is free um, feedback and criticism and and all of that, right? And so you really need to embrace it. Take, take it. There's a lot of value to that. Yeah, and don't don't think. Hey, you know this is a. It's not a. It's not a critique of you. It's not a critique of, of your your ego or your skill or or your intelligence. It's just where you need to really learn to to say because you've you've always said, you've always said you know, be able to to um be as you say intellectually honest, which I think is a great way to phrase that. So to say okay, is you know does this person have a point um, that I should really think about and and just be willing to take that critique and embrace it and kind of lean into it and go, well, maybe there is something here and I need to I need to be willing to accept that versus, hey, this person doesn't get it, you know, forget them, I'm going to move on, I'll find somebody else. You you need to really take the time, particularly if you're on your first restaurant, to to, to take that and absorb it and, and, you know, challenge yourself. That's right. And, and, and here's the interesting thing, okay? Even, or at least in my own experience, right? Okay, so so the two big things that people were very concerned about. I mean, there were a host of things they were concerned about, but the two big things that they were concerned about that turned out to be uh, non-issues was being on the third floor and parking. And so the point is, is that that even when you say inside your head, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Um, what you need to recognize is is that whether his criticism has any actual um, value, it it's something that somebody else is going to say. So so like even if it's not a, a a valid criticism in reality, it's a valid objection that you're going to bump into again. And so what you need to do is have a great well thought answer to that objection. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes a ton of sense. It makes because it, it's going to come up again, and you just need to be able to deal with it, whether you think it's meaningful or not. Um, That's right. So and you can't just dismiss it and say, "Oh, you don't get it." No, I, hey, no. You know, other people have been concerned about this, but take a look at this or whatever. Right? I mean, you need to be able to answer those. And so, so especially in the beginning, when you're when you're doing those those pitches to the people that are at the bottom of your list, I mean, what you hope for is that. They really are hypercritical. Like, like, let's hear every possible objection. You know what I mean? So, um, so that, that's it. Lean into that. Recognize the value of that. It's going to make you stronger. So then, so you wound up and you got your seven hundred thousand. I get you got thirty five investors. 
which was an average of $20,000 per investor. And uh, I asked you before, I said, isn't it just kind of crazy having to manage that many investors? That seems like a lot to me. But you you kind of said, you know, when when there's that many and they're not putting some gigantic sum, it's not like a six-figure sum or whatever, then then it becomes a little bit easier, actually, than you might think. So talk, talk a little bit about that. I thought that was a really important thing that, uh, versus getting like maybe you know six people to each put in you know just over a hundred grand or whatever you got thirty five to put in an average of twenty I know that varied per investor but um, talk about the, the process of uh, having an investor group and, and what that means and having that many people involved. Well, one of the interesting aspects of um, when trying to raise money is people will say, well, you know, too many cooks spoil the broth, blah 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 blah. You don't want too many people. Um, and what I've learned is is that you know, there are upsides and downsides to every size of investment group. And so, you know, the good news about being able to do something with only one or two investors is you don't waste a lot of time raising money, uh, you can kind of get moving, et cetera. But the downside is is that those folks are truly going to see themselves as, as or arguably can see themselves as being involved in the day-to-day business which is fine, but you need to recognize that they are more than likely going to play a very active role. And if you don't deliver, then, you know, you may have to, you know, you may find yourself removed from your organization or whatever, depending on your agreement. Um, you know, the rule of thumb that, hey, too many cooks spoil the broth, well, you know, I, you know, when you have only one or two investors, the nice thing is, is that it's pretty easy to all get on the same page. Now, if you have six or eight investors, now all of a sudden, you're talking about everybody's involved enough that they feel that they should be involved or or can claim to be involved on a daily basis. And now all of a sudden you got six to eight cooks and they do spoil the broth, and that's a problem. Um, and so you need to think about how you manage that. What's interesting to me is is that I, <laughs> I got to the point where I was willing to accept any size investment. I took investments as low as $3,000, and I ultimately got 35 people to invest. The interesting aspect of this and the advantage to this um, was there was no one investor that was so invested that they felt like this was, you know, the big thing in their life. And so I was, as long as I kept them informed, everything was fine, and, and nobody felt like, hey, this is, you know, I bet bet the milk money on this. And so, yeah, there's a downside from a, a tax season perspective where you've got to come out with 35K1s and all of this kind of stuff. But I have found that, um, you know, I'm okay with the idea of lots of little investors because, Again, nobody's assumed so much risk that um, you're going to be spending all of your time dealing with fears and concerns instead of just going out there and making a successful restaurant, which is what you need to be doing. What was your like? So, how did you, um, you know, with the idea that hey, you know, this is a, a long-term investment, and over time you're going to get a nice, you know, annual dividend? Or how did you get people involved and then? You know, what were some of the specifics? Like, did you pay them year one, or, you know, sure. when did people sure. start getting a return on the investment? So, first of all, I will just tell you that um, I think I struck, I think the, the the structure of my deal, and which, by the way, through all of those pitches, you know, the structure of the deal was something that was, was actually iterated on. Um, but um, I think that um, the thing that I'm kind of amazed at is I am amazed at some of the deals that restaurateurs will get into in terms of, to me, it seems really, really slanted in favor of the restaurateur. So so I will tell you the deals that I put together. Uh, there are other folks that were able to put together much better deals um, 
although I think it ultimately leads to fallout because I feel like the investors um, sometimes felt a little short shifted and so so you know i'm I'm always trying to make the win win and I'm always trying to make sure that everybody's incentives are aligned uh because again, what I'm interested in is long term sustainability so what we ended up doing was we said that the sweat equity team um, got sixty six percent or or sixty five percent of the actual restaurant um, and um the the cash investors got basically one third. Now, um, the the change there was, and if you talk to a normal valuation, they'll say, well, now wait a minute, how how did you get to that? Well, my thought process was, you know, one third goes to the idea, one third goes to the debt equity, and it was the sweat team that actually signed on for the debt equity, and then one third goes to uh, the cash investments. But here's the kicker: I set it up so that starting year three. Cash investors were entitled to a 15% um, a preferred dividend uh, of their original cash investment until the original cash investment was paid off, at which point we would all revert to pro rata. And so what that means is is that, that you know, you talk a lot about restaurant tours buying their partners out or whatever. I, I didn't see it that way. We were pretty, you know, it was pretty big. I mean, now the numbers seem kind of small, but 20 years ago that was a lot of money. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I don't know, it just seemed to me, from a fairness perspective, that that um, I wanted it that everybody, you know, our little top-of-the-hill family would just kind of stay rocking along. And uh, so we gave it to year three before anybody got dividends because we needed the company to be off to a, a sound footing. But we actually started paying dividends in year two. Um, and this... When we paid off that 15% preferred return, the other thing that was interesting is, is that if there was money left over, so so basically the way the whole thing worked out was, 15% um, of the investment was 75 grand. So we we actually, you know, distribute 75,000 uh, dollars. If there is any money on top of that 75,000 dollars, the sweat equity guys got a matching payment. And then if there was any money past that now aggregate $150,000, that was all distributed pro rata. And all of the money paid back to the cash investors was counted. So when their original investment of $700,000 was paid back, then we would all just get paid based on our shares. And so what that did was it incented me to make enough money so I had at least $150,000 to distribute so I could get some money beyond my kind of a pittance of a salary. Um, but it made the investors feel like, hey, that guy's not making any money unless he's making money for me. Yeah, um, right, right. Okay. You know? So you pay so 15% per year until they were paid back, and then if you owned, you know, a, a half a percent of the equity, then, you know, then you would get one half of a, a half percent, a percent of, of the, the profits, yeah. annual right. distribution. Okay. And what is it? Is it LLC? It's an LLC, yeah. And, and i got to tell you, you know, it, it made a lot of sense to form as an LLC 20 years ago. I'm not so sure that I would be doing that now. Um, and this is where, you know, get with a good attorney and get with a good accountant. Uh, I think there's a lots of reasons to um, organize as a C-corporation there. Oh, really? Yeah, because well, the whole thing about the LLC is avoiding double taxation. But 
you know, the way our whole tax debate is going on, they keep talking about cutting corporate income tax, corporate income tax, and they don't recognize that 70% of the small businesses in the United States are incorporated as pass-through entities. And so that means that we're taxed on our own our own tax rate. And so it gets very complicated. But bottom line is, I'll just let you know that, that what was very, very advantageous to be a quote-unquote pass-through entity 20 years ago, I'm not so sure it's as advantageous now. And it would depend upon the, the capital equipment needs of your concept. Okay. That's really good. So that's an important thing if you're listening to this, to, to be be aware of that and know that, that some of the, the landscape of the uh, of, of our tax system has changed, and so be, be careful and, and speak, as Scott said, to an accountant and an attorney. That's really important. Uh, you know, do you have those, all of those investors still, or do, do you have some eventually over time that are saying, hey, you know, I, I, could you buy me out, or how does that work, or how's that happen? Well, it's interesting. So uh, I have one investor who just turned 85 years old, and he goes, you know what, it's time for me to sell my shares. <laughs> and so we've got a process set in place. Uh, one of those is evaluation of the company itself. Uh, so we need to go through that. We need to figure that out, um, and that's kind of on my list of things to do. Uh, I haven't really jumped on it because it's tax season right now, but uh, we're going to get into that and figure that out. Um, but I figure that, you know, the guy's been with me now t- 20 years. I, that, that's a pretty good run. And so then what you would do is you would ha- you have a process that was probably already written into the agreement where you, you get an independent business appraiser, and they come up with some valuation for the business, and you say, okay, well, you own 2%, and this is what it was valued at, so we pay out. Uh, that amount for your shares. That's right. And then the business right. now and actually the way it works is shares. we do the business appraisal, um, and then I have, in the agreement, I have first right to buy the shares. Uh, then the company has the right to, uh, excuse me, um, I have the right to buy the shares, then the company has the right to buy the shares, and we would just then uh, distribute it equally or pro rata among all the shareholders. And then if either myself or the company doesn't want to buy it, then individual investors can buy it. And then uh, if that doesn't happen, then you could bring in somebody else. Gotcha. Okay. So, look, so, Scott, this is, I mean, this is like a, uh, this is just a, I mean, you just taught a class on on, um, raising money. And not not only for a restaurant. I I mean, I just think for, for, you know, 90% of what you said is applicable to any kind of business. so, well, that's what I mean about being a business person, right? The, yeah. We, we we have people in every industry somehow think that their industry is somehow different. And what I would find is it's sort of like us, you know, so, sort of like human beings and chimpanzees, right? I, if I'm not mistaken, if I got it right, I think we share 97% DNA, right? So yeah. 97% of, of business is the same. It's the last 3% of the secret sauce that makes it radically different, you know? Well, so I, I totally agree. Um now, we're like 50 minutes into this thing, so I'm going to let you go because I know you're extremely busy and you have a lot going on. But what I want to do, if you're open to it, um, is maybe come back in like a few months or something. We'll wait till after tax season. We'll wait till spring or early summer or whatever. But I, I do want to follow up with you at some point, and maybe even if it's for 20 minutes over another another uh, podcast, is to talk about the role of the independent restaurant in a community uh, and the changing landscape of the restaurant world and, you know, change what they were like 20 years ago, what they're like now, because you have a lot of good things to say about that, but I don't want to take more time today, but would you be would you be open to doing that, like, say, like, maybe like three or four months from now? Hey, Will, you know my favorite subject is me. You just call ah, me. Uh, talk about me all you want. 
<laughs> hey, man, that's totally not true. So, but I, I do appreciate. It. I know anybody that listens to this is probably like if they're serious about you know starting a restaurant or raising money, they uh, hopefully took three or four, five pages of notes because that's just incredible well, I advice. Hope, I hope the people that are listening to this and, and Will did not ask me to do this or whatever. It's just the truth. I learned a lot about reading the book and get the book and read the book because you know. What I think it was oh, read, 20- uh, rest- restaurant owners on court, which you were in. Yes. Well, I'm going to tell you. So I was in the damn book, and I learned a lot from that book. Okay. I mean, I learned a learning lot from other people. That's right. Uh, and I even learned from myself. I was like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> I just, funny. I should emphasize that some more. <laughs> well, you know, the book still does well. I mean, we came out with it four years ago, but all of the, you know, I'd say like 90 percent of what was said in there is like kind of timeless advice. So. It's we're I mean I'm ex, you know we're just we're excited that thing still sells well and people seem to like it so that's good advice now I, I mean I didn't ask you to but thanks for saying that I hope people will you know do go get restaurant owners and court it's on Amazon and and uh, it's you know Scott's in it and it's like twelve bucks or whatever so it's a it's a good investment um it's it's got twenty owners talking about you know the same kind of stuff we talked about here today um about how to be successful in the business so Scott thanks man thanks for the time appreciate it as always uh, if you're ever in Chapel Hill. Uh, go, absolutely go to Top of the Hill. It's it's fantastic. Uh, great food, great service. Just a cool setting up there on that third floor. And if it's warm, sit on the porch. It's awesome. Uh, and then talk about real quick for anybody that's like looking to buy, uh, you know, Topo Distilleries Organic uh, Vodka and Gin. Or tell, is, there, is there other ways people can order that? And tell us what states it's in. Absolutely. So we are in nine states now. So. Uh, um, uh, we are in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. Um, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, uh, soon. We're also Minnesota and Missouri, soon to be in uh, uh, Wisconsin and Illinois. Uh, you can go to our website, topodistillery.com, and it's against the law for me to sell you something, but you can get hooked up with retailers that will sell you or send you uh, um, uh, bottles of our stuff. And uh, we are obviously available in ABC stores throughout North Carolina and all of that. So, um, love for you, for, you know, dirty uh, secret in the distilling industry is 80% of distillers don't make their own stuff from scratch. We're from scratch. We only use ingredients that come within 100 miles of us, and it's really fantastic stuff. That's all, 80% don't make it from scratch, huh? Yeah, it's crazy. It really is. It's it's really <laughs> – the weird part is they don't make it from scratch, but they want to claim that they're handcrafted or whatever, and it's just it's just um, – it's really fascinating to me, yeah. Good. All right. So, um, so check it out, folks. And thanks for listening, Scott. Thanks for the time, man. Have a good, uh, good weekend. Will you too, buddy? As always, a real pleasure. All right, man. Take care. All right, buddy.